This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing the film Carnage. I'll kick us off. Carnage came out in 2011. It was directed by Roman Polanski, and it is Polanski's most recent film in the English language, although he's got another coming up. The film is set in Brooklyn. A boy named Zachary hits a boy named Ethan with a stick, if hit is the right word. Ethan tells his parents, and Ethan's parents tell Zachary's parents. Both sets of parents meet at Ethan's house to decide what to do. But Zachary and Ethan do not attend. It's a parents-only meeting. Zachary's parents are played by Kate Winslet and Christoph Waltz. Ethan's parents are played by Jodie Foster and John C. Riley. The meeting does not go well. These four people all unintentionally rub each other the wrong way, repeatedly. Christoph Waltz is a lawyer who defends pharmaceutical companies and takes phone calls at all the wrong times. Kate Winslet resents her husband for his unavailability. John C. Riley sells kitchen implements. He has a petty bourgeois, boys-will-be-boys attitude, and Jodie Foster can't stand it. Each couple deflects from the tensions within its own marriage by moralizing about the other couple. Every time Winslet and Waltz try to leave, Jodie Foster tries to make peace. But the negotiations are always disrupted by petty and sanctimonious remarks. The conflict gets more intense as the film moves along. It also gets increasingly multidimensional. Sometimes the couples fight with each other. Sometimes the husbands fight with the wives. Eventually, John C. Riley offers everybody alcohol, and then things really get out of hand. Myriad valuable objects are destroyed. There is wailing and gnashing of teeth. The desire of the four characters to be morally right, both individually and as couples, ultimately gets in the way of their quest for peace. By the end of the film, I'm not sure either marriage will survive. We do, however, get one last shot of the boys on the playground. They manage to make peace with each other, without the help of their parents. You see, it's hard to make peace when you don't have skin in the game. When you make peace, you decide to tolerate the people you're making peace with. You tolerate them not because you think they're wonderful, but because you've concluded the costs of intolerance are too high. If you want peace, but you are not prepared to tolerate difference, it's not going to work. In this film, the parents are not only unable to tolerate one another, they go into the negotiations looking to get their own perspectives and values affirmed. They demand that their spouses see the world the same way they see it. They insist that the other couple adopt their perspective. They are not really pursuing peace. They use the pursuit of peace as a cloak. Hannah Arendt draws a distinction between speech acts and mere talk. Speech is an attempt to act with another person, taking that other person seriously as an equal. Talk is an attempt to make someone do what you want with words. For Arendt, talker, talk is closer to violence than speech. I'm not sure I'd go that far, but it underlines the gulf between what these people say they are doing and what they are actually doing. The boys are able to make peace because they must go to school with each other, and if they don't make peace, they know they will continue to assault one another. They have to find a modus vivendi because there are real consequences if they don't find one. That forces them to drop the moralist cant. It forces them to tolerate each other. In time, that tolerance may open the way to friendship. Even if it doesn't, they will have peace rather than war. In a world where there is less war, there is also less peace. As the possibility of war fades, the need for peace fades too. Ancient states made peace with each other because it was the practical, reasonable thing to do. Where there was no peace, there was war, and war ended in slavery and death, not just for the poor, but often for the rich, too. Today we don't make war, and therefore we don't make peace either. We relate to each other like parents in Brooklyn. What we call tolerance today is instead a demand for acceptance, a demand that other people see the world our way and validate our point of view. When other people refuse to accept us, we pretend to feel unsafe. But even this is just another tactic to extract acceptance. When safety is a given, there is no need for civility. The one who practices civility is a sucker, a prisoner of a past in which real violence was still possible. It is the Karen, 
the one who screams and babbles incoherently until they are placated, who sees things as they really are. There are no longer real consequences for unreasonableness, and therefore there is no reason to be reasonable. That's my take. Let's see what Alan thinks. Thank you very much. I have a cold, so I'll keep it short. Um, And I haven't seen this film for a long time. I watched it a few times when it first came out. I do love Polanski. And obviously, this is one of um, the films that came out after about 2009, where I think he was in real trouble then. And... um, some, you know, obviously he's uh, he has various accusations and can't go to America. But there was some when he was filming uh, the ghost. Some other, some like more intense legal stuff came came up, and they had to film that in interesting ways. And this obviously a lot of his later films, a lot of his films in general are kind of quite claustrophobic and shot in quite claustrophobic ways. Obviously, Rosemary's Baby mostly takes place in the flat, but um, his later films, you know, Venus in Fur, in which one's the actual, which one is the text Venus and Furs and his films Venus and Fur, or the other way around, I don't know. With yeah, the on the end. It's v- Venus and Furs is the, te- the Sasha Massock text. So he's, his is Venus and Fur. Um, but it's a play. It's a sort of a, a single location, two characters to play. And obviously this is a, a play that's dramatised, kept in a very, very tight location, filmed not in Brooklyn because he can't go to America. So it's interesting how he negotiates his, reality um and i think it's very effective um so yeah this this film is about politeness and middle class people like anything there's a contradiction in politeness so politeness in this um uh sorry i just said something in in the way it's used here when it's used like anything as a fetish rather than like a tool in and of itself it tends to be taken to the extreme and the usefulness of politeness falls apart because politeness is very important. You know, there's, there's no beyond of politeness, you know. Um, there's no, I'm sure Jodie Foster's character is very kind of orientalist and sort of that like 90s, noughties, patronizing, proto-woke person who is, you know, probably imagines that people living in tribal societies are like ethically and morally and essentially superior to, to Westerns. Like, civilization is not in and of itself a bad thing, but it involves various kinds of repressions. Um, but there's no, there's no magical beyond, there's no oneness, there's no answer. But when things are used as a weapon to negotiate the more complex and contradictory controls of reality, then things become toxic. Like any symptom or any strategy can become a toxic. You end up in therapy because the symptom or the, the strategy you'd use to paper over the complex and contradictory controls of reality become too painful to bear. And you have to then get back to negotiating reality as it is, not as you want it to be. And I think in this situation, and this is the sort of like very stock criticism of middle class and upper middle class people and bourgeois life is that it involves so much repression, which is not a good thing. And that um, this politeness is only covering over a veneer of like a carnal reality. So it's true. But at the same time, there's no easy solution. And the easy solution is not to just throw it off and to destroy forms of life and to say these people are essentially worse than anybody else, um, but to understand what the politeness is covering over. And so like anything as a tool, Things fall into the opposite of themselves. And at a certain point, precisely because they're being polite, the limits of their politeness emerge and we're left with sort of like toxic argumentation. Um, We've talked about this so many times, but there is a a, a Dylan Moran quote where he says, war isn't conflict, is the inability to do conflict. And it's precisely what Benjamin was talking about as well, that when you aren't able to negotiate and to dialogue rather than monologue, and you um, obviously spoke to this, Benjamin, you you aren't able to do conflict. Conflict is what should happen in, for instance, the political system where you have 
oppositional ways of managing desire and reality and resources coming up against each other in a productive negotiation. And when that doesn't happen, you have war. And politeness can be a way to prevent conflict from happening and to ultimately lead to some kind of all-out war. And obviously today we're in a bit of a, a, a shitty situation where politics isn't really happening. The political parties are not doing politics. They're doing the kind of talking that Benjamin um, describes and are um, talking when you can't uh, understand that the person that you are supposed to be dialoguing with is a lacking subject just like you, but rather a you imagine them to be a total carnal, disgusting being that needs to be disciplined or is that essentially unethical and wrong. And I'm seeing this in my work quite a lot at the moment. This is not politics. Politics does demand that we see the other as a person, as a lacking being, as somebody trying to negotiate the complex and contradictory contours of reality for themselves. Um, so yeah, this film is not really about uh, dialogue or negotiation or even law, you know, they're talking about this case that's rather trying to avoid that. Um, and it's not about the child, yeah, the child's injury at all. It's about point scoring and avo avoiding a lawsuit, like avoiding, obviously the legal system has all kinds of problems and lawyering has all kinds of problems, but maybe we could say that that represents some kind of negotiation. Um, yeah, and we can say that this sort of toxic politeness, which is not to do with actual, what I would imagine the best of politeness is, which is acknowledging that other people have different ways of living in reality. And we have to deal with those different ways along with our own. I think that really is what, you know, in, a, in, a, in an ideal sense, politeness is, you know, it's okay that you're doing this and it's okay. And we're, we're finding a way to sort of negotiate that. This sort of like fake politeness, the sort of like image of politeness, which is more to do with like upper class social mores, is the similar sort of like PC wokeism where there are the right things to do. This is not about, you know, um, coming up against different cultures and appreciating them. As, it's domesticating and deciding that this people who adopt these social mores know what this other group is, and they've understood it, and this is the right way to think. So, you know, like we've said, with everything, things can turn out and turn to be the opposite of this. We have an ideal understanding of what politeness should be in social negotiation, and what we we come up with is some like horrible, total, totalitarian, forceful, solipsistic, you know, energy that has nothing to do with actually being nice and understanding and accepting and tolerant and polite. And I do think that the Jodie Foster character is quite interesting. She um, is, talks about culture being a powerful force for peace. You know, she's into the arts. And it's interesting, there's a question of well, Kate Winslet's character at a certain point vomits her cobbler up all over um, Jodie Foster's expensive photography books. And maybe this is a question about what art is and what, what condoned, contained bourgeois art is. And obviously, when we look at Polanski, who, because of his uh, personal transgressions, isn't, you know, in the eyes of many, allowed to be an artist. Maybe this is a, a, a theme that's being kind of questioned by Polanski. What is art? Does, is art that which is, you know, commoditizable and, care, you know, carefully curated in a coffee table book? Or is it something more messy? And can we puke on art? And, you know, can we just like reject what is this sort of bourgeois acceptable art? Culture, though, like I, you know, we have this idea of like, you know, culture is an emergent really of a political economy. Um, but as a dialectical materialist, I do think culture can be not just a symptom of politics, but actually philosophically political in and of itself. Um, so I clicked on the wrong thing again. I'm doing all the wrong clicking. But yeah, so, you know, and you hear the, the it's interesting that, you know, that, that, that wokeism and anti-wokeism both co-opt culture attempt trying to make it into a political force uh, or a force for what they see as their own good but of course that means it's not political because if it's totalitarian and it's solipsistic 
And it's an idea of what the world should be without dialogue, without negotiation, without this more ideal form of politeness. It's not political. It's actually the opposite. So, you know, this politics is downstream from culture, kind of like we can influence culture, which obviously the, the liberal left and, and the right do. So it can be a fetish over politics and a tool to guide people away from politics towards a totalitarian comforting vision of the world, which isn't politics at all, which is what we're seeing in this film, I think. Um, and maybe the last thought is that all of these people have PMC jobs in some way. I did the John C. Riley. Um, character potentially less so because he's sort of more of a trade, uh, um, a salesperson. But the, you know, and again, I don't, this is something that I'm not that convinced by, or I think the kind of stock accusation of middle class people of being like, um, like I, I don't think repression is the, is, is the end, basically. I don't think that, um, overcoming repression is all there is. You know, I think that, you know, like, the dictum of desire with Lacan, it's, it's all contradictory. It's all about like, you know, it's not as facile as being like overcome repression and it'll all be great. But there is something to do with these um, professional jobs. So Christopher Waltz's character is like in medical sales type stuff. And then Kate Winsor's character is an insurance broker. And, and um, Jodie Foster is has some sort of job to do with like writing and curating and taming the untamed into something digestible for middle-class people. So there is something in the idea that the, the professional job is really like eating shit for capitalism, eat, turning the shit into something presentable, acceptable, and I wouldn't say digestible, but, um, you know, a veneer of acceptability. But a lot of these Professional jobs are often, you know, you have the, the people working in the sewers, you know, actually dealing with shit. But the shit side of capitalism, which is, you know, like everything because we're human beings, like there's a carnal aspect to it, is to do with sort of managing the shit. And uh, I don't envy a lot of those jobs. They're not, they're not easy and they're not um, conducive to good mental or physical health. But there you go. All right. Let's hear what Nina has to say. Right. Well, um, I really, really enjoyed this film. It uh, passed me by in 2011. And I was recalling this period with a kind of um, biographical horror because I think at that time uh, I was so tied up with court cases and the aftermath of student protest stuff that I didn't go to the cinema for about two years. Um, in fact, and it was actually very bleak. Now I come to think of it in terms of a kind of cultural void, you know, like I probably could have done more to have uh, uh, lived with both bread and roses uh, <laughs> as opposed to just, I don't know, bread and bread in the state. So it was kind of interesting to think about 2011 uh, from this uh, point of view, uh, just, just personally. I thought this was a absolutely a brilliant film. I thought it exemplified uh, the kinds of ambiguity um, that art and cinema can, and you know, when when it does it well, uh, really uh, performed absolutely beautifully. And I think uh, it was a very claustrophobic uh, set piece. I agree. I was going to make the same point or similar point to Helen actually about the the vomits and the art and this uh, absolute kind of recognition of the uh, the the fundamental tension, I suppose. Uh, and of course, this film is directed by Polanski. It's very very significant. I think that he gets these very famous actors to to uh, appear in his film, um, as if to say uh, people who understand art recognize my genius uh, and in fact they're all brilliant in this film I have to say um, I was very impressed with, with all of the performances um, and Kate Winslet uh, is in, in particular I, I don't know she, I think maybe she has a particular uh, appeal to women uh, especially I wonder if I mean she's very attractive obviously but I, there's something about her that I find and I think many women find very very appealing because she's she seems very real <laughs> I mean I'm sure she's attracted to men too but there, there's something about Kate Winslet in particular that I, I always 
think is is very uh moving in a sort of human way uh it's sort of hard to explain that maybe but um i i would like to just make a, a quick note on the uh the 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 chronology of the sickness the winslet character is sick before they drink alcohol and i think this is actually uh important and it's 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 unclear whether she's sick as a consequence of eating this cobbler this 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 dish uh that the, the jodie foster character has made with all kinds of like you know complicated backstories about how it's a borrowed recipe except she's improved it from her sort of more working class husband's mother and it's all about what, what time you put the pear in compared to the apple um, and it's this uh, yeah sort of increasingly theatrical and claustrophobic kind of liberal spinning in the void there's a brilliant line from the John C. Riley character at one point who notes that Jodie Foster's character has asked him to dress like a liberal um, or at least that was his interpretation of the instructions in order so that they could have this meeting uh, with this other couple and of course they're, they're different aspects as, as already noted of a particular professional class and um, the more uh, the you know kind of upper working class and then the liberal arts uh, I you know it was an interesting back story question as to how the Jodie Foster character and the John C. Riley character would have gotten together um, I thought this was slightly open-ended uh, you know because she's clearly part of a sort of more liberal elite I think the the hilarity is it's a very comic uh, film of uh, of the Kate Winslet character and the Jodie Foster character looking at this book of Francis Bacon it's also uh, an artist who appears in Pasolini's theorem uh, they, they examine the, the book in this film too and maybe not the same one, but it, there's a discussion of Francis Bacon. There's no way that um, uh, Polanski doesn't know that. They 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 discuss the kind of in a very genteel way the kind of chaos and the and the and the sort of horror of Bacon. Uh, and then the, the Jodie Foster character concludes by saying exactly like, "Oh, art is such a force of peace in the world." Um, uh, shortly uh, before uh, Kate Winslet's character vomits all over <laughs> her rare art books, um, and I think you know it. On some level, Polanski is drawing drawing attention to to obviously on the surface the hypocrisies of this liberal class, right, including the class who would condemn him for his you know uh, transgressions. Um, obviously, he, he the film is set in America. He's not allowed to be in America. Um, there is uh, you know there are lots of lots of little um, jag jagged point points um, that are drawing attention to this this yeah this. The, the way in which liberal hypocrisy proceeds. It's the Jodie Foster character who, who exhibits physical violence in the film more than any other. She, she kind of physically pummels her husband, uh, despite talking about how she's the one who, who understands best how, how, um, peace works. Um, I think it's, it's clear as Benjamin says that there are, there are two ways of thinking about peace and war. There's, there's a peace that is based on war or the acceptance of war. Um, what the, uh, the pharmaceutical character um, talks about in terms of the god of carnage. Uh, this is where the title of the film comes from. Um, if you accept that there is fundamentally uh, war in the Heraclitus sense, that the war is the father of all things, and then you try to uh, understand peace on that basis, um, and diplomacy is in that sense always the practice of um beginning with the possibility or the reality of war rather than the Jodie Foster, the liberal kind of fantasy that if we just understand things a bit better and everyone behaves a bit better, then we can have a kind of peace. Um, and it's very interesting, the discussion that they, the pharmaceutical character and the Jodie Foster character have about violence in Africa, right? So Africa is is understood by these characters in two different ways. She's she's writing something vaguely about Darfur um, and he has, he describes being in the Congo and talking about child soldiers and the way in which children uh, have engaged in uh, murderous violence. And he talks about the weapons that they use. And of course, this is in the context of their two sons having, you know, a bit of back and forth and one of them has smacked the other one's tooth out. And this is a relatively minor violent transgression, despite the liberal spinning in the void and the endless negotiation and discussion and the terror exhibited by the Foster character in particular, Obviously, compared to the violence of the child soldiers and it, that the, the pharmaceutical guy talks about. And there are two images of Africa. Obviously, Africa is situated here as like this great, um, unknown or mysterious continent. The dark continent is sometimes described. 
Um, but both of these characters are drawing upon their experience or their fantasy or their image of Africa as a sort of um, in order to bolster their theories of violence. So for, for the foster character, the violence is always going to be imposed by colonial history. Right. And we see this argument made a lot all the time, that there is no violence other than that, which is a response to Western violence, right? And the entire history of the world can be read in terms of a response to the violence. Who threw the first stone? Well, it was the West, right? We have this We have this story constantly. Um, of course, this deprives the other of the capacity for violence on their own terms, right? Which, from a revolutionary point of view, as Fanon will point out, this is uh, absolutely abominable, right? To, and, and Helen often makes this point about the innocent, the the fantasy of the the, the child or the innocent or the whole or complete being, um, as if uh, every hu- living human being is not a, a subject riven by the capacity for violence and indeed capable of violent feeling and violent thought and violent action. Um, so I think it, uh, Polanski does a fantastic job of um, drawing attention to these uh, these kind of uh, subtle um, hypocrisies. Um, And I would just like to make a plea for what I think is the most important character in the entire film that has not yet been mentioned, which is Nibbles the hamster, right? Nibbles the hamster. Okay, this is very, very important. (laughs) Seriously. Nibbles the hamster is the pet or was the pet or continues to be the pet of the uh, Jodie Foster and John C. Riley family. The John C. Riley character, despite his masculinity and his sort of interest in tools, is has a rodent phobia. Um, and this, this pet hamster belonged to his daughter, who's the other child of that family, who isn't uh, part of the story of the violent action, right? But nevertheless, all we will come to understand about her is that she loved her hamster. The hamster was annoying and, and upsetting the John C. Riley character who um, took it outside, didn't hold it, but simply dumped the cage outside and tipped the hamster out into the New York street. The Kate Winslet character is absolutely horrified by this gesture of what she perceives to be abject cruelty and even a form possible sociopathy, um, not only on, on behalf of the, the female child who's been hurt that her hamster's that, you know, just been taken away. And the parents have, in fact, lied to the girl and told her that the hamster escaped when indeed it didn't. And and they say in the film, oh, she didn't buy it, right? So they've got two children who are upset. <laughs> well, and, and in a way, they're kind of uh, slightly focusing on the boy in order to, I think, avoid dealing with the daughter. Um, but Nibbles the hamster is then dumped unceremoniously on the New York street um, <laughs> because the John C. Riley character can't bear the sound. And indeed, they say the son who has been hurt also f- feels the same about the hamster. At the end of the film, you not only see the two boys reconciling and in fact playing with a phone. And the phone is also perhaps the other secondary character we should mention in the film. I, Benjamin mentioned that the farmer guy is always on the phone and it's deeply irritating and he keeps talking and he's very rude. Um, and at one point, the Kate Winslet character drops his phone in the in a tulips. The tulips that they've bought is this kind of bourgeois image of peace, peace uh, yellow tulips. And and anyway, the phone uh, is taken out by the, the tall guy and it dries out and it works again. And at that moment uh, of the end of the film uh, where, the, where the farmer guy has been destroyed because he's lost his phone and he's devastated and he's sitting on the floor and he can't cope anymore despite being talking about violence and being a man. Um, the, the phone there is a scene the final scene with the two boys who've reconciled on their own terms and it looks like they're playing with a phone and it's a very interesting moment because the phone in one context is just disruptive and awful and um, uh, you know uh, antisocial and in the other scene the, the phone is a focus of a sociability and a pact and a friendship made up by the boys right so it's a very interesting note about um, how objects function in different contexts and just before the the scene with the boys reconciling in the distance, very Hanukkah scenes actually, the, the the beginning and the end, the kind of distant scene in which you have to kind of pick out the um the, the you know who who you're looking at in inverted commas. Um, there is a scene of Nibbles the hamster <laughs> who is who is alive and thriving somewhere uh, in a in a in a park or at least is on some grass somewhere. And and what I took from these two final uh, moments 
is is not only the kind of persistence of nature and the wildness uh, and the fact that like you know life will find a way if you like um and that nibbles the hamster despite its bourgeois trappings um and its maltreatment <laughs> will will somehow survive uh, and find and uh, find a place uh, in the city um but also that this liberal spinning in the void is all completely meaningless um precisely in the face of as as benjamin pointed out like the, the necessity of the boys to at least live together and to work out a way of being together despite this violent action. Um, and I thought it was just, it's a, it's quite a short film. It's about an hour and 15 minutes or something like that. Uh, and I thought it was just uh, just fantastic. Um, and it reminded me to, to go back to Polanski, actually. And I think he's one of these most uh, incredible filmmakers in terms of his range and diversity. And I think the intelligence of the script um, and the, how well cast this film. So I was really, really uh, very, very happy to have watched this. Um, so, yeah. That's great. I'm glad you enjoyed it so much. Yeah, one, uh, one thing I was thinking about as I listened to you guys, I'm not sure if this happened today that it would go this way. I almost think that what we see in this film is a sort of transition. And it, it, it was kind of gestured at in uh, you know, Helen's remark that, that uh, the Jodie Foster character is kind of pre-woke or a-woke. Uh, that the Jodie Foster character exists in a kind of 90s moral space that precedes our own epoch. You know, the Jodie Foster character really thinks that she can dialogue with these guys. Of course, when she dialogues with them, it's in this kind of haughty way that makes it impossible for them to reconcile. But she still thinks that the dialogue is possible. And I remember when Facebook came out, in the early years of Facebook, everybody dialogued with everybody on Facebook all the time. And there was this fantastic delusion people had that they could somehow ha achieve something by having a political conversation on Facebook. A fantastic delusion. And it lasted maybe 10 years. Maybe 10 years on Facebook, I want to say. Before around 2016, people realized kind of en masse that this just doesn't work. And... You know, sometimes there's an inclination to say, well, talking doesn't work. Deliberation doesn't work. But it, it's the way of talking that comes out of this 90s, 2000s, end of history, moralizing liberal discourse. That's what doesn't work. It's talking with an intent to persuade, uh, to make someone agree, to make someone see it go away, instead of talking with a genuine interest in, in interchange. And some of that's because it happens in public in front of other people, and you want to be seen to win the engagement. Uh, so I think if it happened today with people from my generation who are increasingly parents of young children, I think what would happen is that there would be no attempt to talk to the parents of the other child. I think instead it would be taken directly to the school and there would be a shrill, loud, repeated demand that the child who committed the act of violence be suspended or expelled or taken to juvenile hall. <laughs> it's funny because what you said remind me of that quote from our paint, the patron state of our podcast I'm not here to take the temperature. I'm here to change the thermostat, right? That's very, very, quite uh, a kind of arrogant <laughs> goal. But, um, but you're right. Like the, actually, in a way, as limited, and I think obviously this is, this film is a critique of the middle class people. But of course, like the flavor of the upper middle class characters is not, Maybe what we would imagine people living in Brooklyn would be like now. <laughs> they were quite the 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 um, Winslet Waltz family, quite right wing in a way. But um, but yeah, no, this uh, and I'm sure it would be taken as um, I mean something that's definitely happened with young people. We've talked about this loads of times. Is is taking things that are maybe like a normal response to being bombarded with images on Instagram and TikTok all day is some kind of like um, diagnosable, corrigible um, ailment or problem instead of analyzing where certain behaviors, even though, you know, this is not to say that people don't suffer with things like ADHD and stuff. I'm talking about the over 
um, diagnosis and the um, ideological, this is a very capitalist desire to see a problem and believe that there is a unity in fixing the problem instead of seeing the problem in more of a dialectical way where it, it might also, it might be a problem, but at the same time, be a solution to another problem, which is a more political problem. And so you have to tarry with those instead of just whacking something on the head with drugs. You have to look at that problem in its socio-political context. And so often what happens is, you know, I feel really sad that children can't, um, as you say, like they might go to, they might be sentenced for something or they might be put on drugs or given an, a diagnosis um, instead of and this is not that there's a oneness in leaving things to sort themselves out, but there might sometimes be a better solution than locking things down and like diagnoses and stuff. Yeah, I, I totally agree that I think today that the families would have behaved in exactly the way that you're describing, right? Like that there would have been an appeal to an institution and to an authority. And I think this is one of the paradoxes of our contemporary age. It's almost like this 2011 film represents uh, at least an image of liberal democracy, right? Like however hypocritical, in fact, you know, at least the adults in the room are trying to have a conversation, right? And they're trying to sort it out and they're trying to they negotiate on terms. They change the language about how the event went down. You know, they, they, they do actually try to take responsibility for their children, albeit in these kind of um, clashing um, ways. Um, but I think now what you have in is it is paradoxical because it's like the more we have a horizontal, you know, homogenous society, the more everyone is like a number in the state and the less there's any appeal to God or hierarchy or verticality, the more people want there to be in the sense that they want there to be someone to complain to. <laughs> you know, it's it's like something I'm hurt and something has gone wrong, there must be someone I can complain to, right? Like this is the, this is the move or, or, you know, my child has been hurt and, you know, I need to go and see someone and I need to, you know, get someone punished and I need the institution to do the punishing. Um, and I think that that's exactly how it would have gone down. It wouldn't have been adults in the room. It would be an appeal to like a fake God or the fantasy that there is someone in authority or someone slightly higher up in a bureaucratic structure, right? Not in in a mm -hmm. transcendent way, um, but in, you know, not even in a, let's say, um, a religious context, you know, like going to speak to a priest might, might be an option, you know, can we get someone to mediate? Can we get a therapist to mediate, let's say, you know, a therapist is not a priest, right? But let's say <laughs> if a situation is so intractable, you might need a third party, you might need a friend, you might need a marriage counsellor, you might need, you know, somebody who is both neutral and professional or something like that. Um, and here, I think, yeah, now, now what we have is the eradication of somehow belief in, in those kind of extra state roles, but but at the same time, a sort of simultaneous, um, I don't know, desire and need for there to be somebody who tells you that your bad feelings or your, your hurt feelings mm -hmm. have meaning in a system and that they will be acknowledged, you well, know. And I, I don't know what we make of this, like, because... Gandhi. We, Gandhi makes this point about lawyers. Gandhi says that when you take a, a dispute to lawyers, you are... Uh, the lawyers are not going to try to resolve the dispute. They're, if anything, going to lean into your perspective and harden it and make it even more adversarial for the purposes of winning the case. And so the lawyer creates and enhances conflict rather than resolves it. That's not to say that I think Gandhi's correct in that overall claim about lawyers. But it's one of the reasons why if somebody threatens you with a lawsuit, if somebody threatens to take something to court, that's a moment at which discussion ends. You know, once somebody threatens litigation, you kind of stop talking to them because now they've said that they're not interested in trying to find a modus vivendi with you. They're looking to use an authority to beat you up in some form or fashion to force you to do whatever it is that they want you to do. Uh, and so once the legal threat is issued, even if it's not taken to court, even if it's not taken to the school, once you issue the threat of it, you are now very much in the business of using talk to make people do stuff. And I think that uh, it's people, people are looking for 
the authority to make people do things. And once you're going to the authority, you are not trying to present the situation to the authority in a reasonable way that engages with the other position. You are trying to motivate the authority to take the most drastic and punitive possible action that you can get the authority to do. So if anything, you hyperbole, you exaggerate the severity of what has happened. You make it out to have been much worse than it was. Uh, you try to persuade yourself that it was that bad for the purposes of making yourself able to persuade the authority that it was that bad. And so it, it's bigged up and bigged up and bigged up. And that's that's what we see with the Karen. The Karen demands to see the supervisor and wails about the injustice of what was done. Uh, you know, sometimes you know, in the videos online, screaming and blubbering and crying about minutia because the scale of the reaction is meant to get the authority to act. And that's the only purpose of the, spe of, of, the, of the talking, is to force the authority to act on your behalf. There's no interest at all in engaging with any other perspective. Uh, and indeed, the act of doing the, the Karen spiel is to make one's position harder and less accessible and, and, uh, and to make dialogue completely impossible right from the start. Um, so uh, interesting in terms of appealing to a higher power. I do think this appeal to scientism is is one of them mm. and that there is this sort of locking down of something that is more of a symptom of a dysfunctional social order, political economy that you can label and that basically turning science from basically a really amazing method of coming closer to understanding reality through a double-blind sort of, you know, gradual honing in on understanding materially the nature of the universe. We turn it into a transcendent, already there authority, like the DSM-5 or something. Not that the, DS, like the DSM-5 technically is sort of like a made-up approximation of labels on top of symptoms that emerge via, you know, brain chemical situations and also um, the mismatching of a human subject in, in, in the political economy. And it's always changing because the political economy shifts and society shifts and we are social beings and our subjectivity is formed by our interaction with other people. And this is not to say that like getting a diagnosis can't be helpful or having medication is not extremely important for people suffering because we don't live in an infinite time. You know, our lives are short and we have to get on with it. But this appeal to um, diagnosis, I think, is very interesting. But um, I've also forgotten what you were saying, Benjamin, because I had a, a point in response to what you were saying. Oh, oh yeah, Karen's, Karen's. Yeah. I feel like also Karen's Karen's um gets such a bad Yeah. Because <laughs> it's hard to distinguish between the fact that yes, this is a symptom of the escalating um angry monologuing that happens in our society. But I don't think it's but obviously, I mean you're not saying this, Benjamin, obviously. But it's not just middle-aged white women that do it. You know? No. And the reason it tends to be associated with women is because men, there's still some latent worry if a man yells like that at another man that he might be hit. And the possibility of violence forces a level of civility. The reason it's associated with women is because of the assumption that women will not be hit. The assumption that women will not be hit allows the woman to be less civil in public than the man who is assuming he might be hit. And, and now if that assumption goes away, then there will cease to be any kind of gendered split with it. And I think increasingly there are, of course, men who do Karen type things and there are women who don't do it. But it, it has a lot to do with whether you anticipate violence might really happen. It's part of why you don't have a lot of working class people who are Karens of any of either gender, because in more working class environments, there is a greater possibility that if you wail like that, someone might hit you. It's also, I mean, I always feel like those examples that you see of the Karen, is someone having the worst day of their life. 
you know, someone really losing it. And um, yeah, not that it's ex excusable behavior or whatever, but I always feel like the examples that get, get released, it's like, God. <laughs> Well, there's also there's different levels to it. I mean, there's you know, wailing to the point where you actually get in trouble for having wailed so much, uh, you know, in, in cases where I think a lot of it to do with, say, masking. You know, a lot of that was strange and brought about by the pandemic. But then there's the kind of ordinary as soon as something goes wrong, taking things directly to the authority figure taking things directly to the manager or to the school or to the court, the American tendency to litigate rather than talk things out. These are all, you know, Karen type things. And of course, men do them as well. I think it's mainly a middle class thing because middle class people often have the assumption that they will not be hit when they talk. But, you know, the, there's an ideal form of legal, the legal system. And then this sort of capitalistic push to the extremes, extend, solidify, harden, adversarial that, you know, it creates more problems than it solves. But, you know, in an ideal sense, two people confronting a reality from a multiplicitous perspective is not a bad thing. But this uh, economic imperative to, to make it extremely adversarial is not good. Well, it, it works. That's why people do it. And it works more and more and more, the more that hitting is off the table as a response to somebody screaming, the more screaming works. If screaming is the worst thing you can do, then what we will do is we'll try to avoid screaming. If you can't respond to screaming with something worse than screaming, then you can't deter screaming with some worse response. So increasingly, screaming is the nuclear option in, in society. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I think it's very interesting that one of the kind of tacit or sometimes explicitly stated rules of society is that you don't hit women, right? This was something that was said when we were children. This is something that has occasionally been said as an adult. Um, and it's almost like what happens if that stops being a rule, right? Like not only, well, maybe because you can't define what a woman is, <laughs> she says provocatively, um, but maybe because if you have a society that basically doesn't adhere to these kinds of, I don't know how to put it, subtle distinctions, right, that are predicated on reality, which is to say men are in general stronger than women, right? The vast majority of men are stronger than most women. And that there's something kind of profoundly unseemly, apart from anything else, about men hitting women, right? Like it's it's a sign of weakness, in fact, because if somebody or, or if a category of people is stronger than another category of, of, of person and, and everybody knows that, then we have to proceed carefully and gingerly along that, that, that assumption and that knowledge. And if somebody breaches that, you know, either in, in domestic violence or in, in, I don't know, some public altercation, um, you know, and you, there are some horrible videos of people who are clearly mentally disturbed, for example, in American cities who just randomly seem to like sucker punch, like, women walking past or whatever, and not only women, but, you know, like there's, there's some very disturbing images, um, seemingly increasingly, you know, who knows if this is just because there's more CCTV or, or something's happening. Um, you know, then you have to kind of wonder what is, you know, in this kind of great flattening out, you know, in the idea that we're all just individual consumers. And if you don't get your way, then as you say, you can scream and shout. And, you know, if you're unhappy, it's because someone else or a group of people has made you unhappy and you can blame them. Um, and you can justify your behavior on the basis of some form of like justice or image that you are getting revenge. You know, and these are very powerful feelings, right? These are very motivating feelings, right? Entire polit political programs are based on these uh, very, very deep primal feelings of wanting uh, to get justice. And, it, and it's absolutely true. In order to uh, make your feelings clearer, you have to say to yourself that there was no ambiguity about the harm that was done to you, right? And this is precisely, I think, the point you're making about when people complain, they, they in a way, there can be no two sides to every story, right? As, 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 as presented in the film, in fact, you know, it, it becomes increasingly obvious that there's, there are two sides to the story, right? It's, it's clear that the other boy 
you know, not again, never to justify this this violent move, but that that perhaps the the, the boy was goaded by the other one. There is this, this discussion of snitching. Snitching used to be indeed one of the worst things you can do. This is also something else that seems to have disappeared as a as a, as a social a tacit social understanding. When I was growing up, being a snitch in any context was absolutely awful. If you told on somebody else, right, you were a very, very bad person. You were almost worse than the person who'd done the thing, you know, and it's... And it's very interesting how now people love to be a snitch. They love to say, this person said this thing, this person did this, so I'm going to complain, da, 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 you know. Again, something else is tearing in the social fabric. Because it works. It works. It used to be that if you went to the adults, the adults might potentially say, well, what did you do to bring this about? The adults would assume that they weren't getting the whole story and that maybe there was something else to it. Uh, and now the adults are ready to believe their own kid, ready to take their own kid's side, even more than the kid themselves is is ready to do. Yeah. Can I just say, when we were kids, right, our parents did not believe us for one second. They would routinely say, like, in fact, be much harsher on us than they would on any other kid because the assumption was that you weren't right. You know, in fact, and in fact, the, 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 it was the other way around. It was more likely that, you know, you would be questioned um, and not believed by your own parents. <laughs> by the way, doesn't doesn't the, the snitching almost work precisely because there is no, no authority? Like the way it works online, because there's no authority to tell you off for having snitched. All there is. And also the way in which that the snitching happens now when you snitch online to the the big other and there is no big other is that all it presents is your aggrievedness and there's nobody to tell you have you been have you snitched and then also because you're it's part of your online brand now that you are out there having said that this thing happened people don't you you know people support it because they support your brand you know People yeah. don't want to like. It, it, it's also it's the personal impersonal dimension. So if you are snitching to a personal authority, the personal authority has a sense of responsibility for how they respond to your grievance. But if you're snitching to an impersonal marketplace of discourse on the internet, everybody has their own individual reasons for participating in that. Nobody feels themselves responsible for the response of Twitter to anything in particular anybody says. And indeed, there's a kind of market logic to social media, to corporations, and so on, that overdetermines the way, say, a firm or the state or a, a social network responds to something that you say. Oftentimes, Twitter is responding to complaints in part out of fear that if it doesn't respond in a particular way, that will generate negative press that might get attention from the regulator. You know, the regulator has said, hey, maybe I should look at you guys as, as possible uh, possible trusts, possible you know, uh, collusion. Maybe you guys are too large. Maybe you need to be broken up. Maybe you're monopolists. And the implication is, if you don't regulate the internet in a way that accords with the interests of the state, you might be looked upon as a potential monopolist. So the tech companies are worried about that government attention and therefore want to regulate speech in such a way that the government will leave them alone and not view them as monopolists. And therefore, they're a little bit nervous. What if I don't make a big enough response to this? Maybe somebody else will be upset with me. Maybe there will be negative public outcry about what I'm doing. So because even the authority doesn't really feel that they exercise authority because of this impersonal character to the regime, uh, nobody is able to ultimately take responsibility for the response to a particular grievance. And therefore, everyone says, well, it's just the system that is, is doing this to you. Yeah. Exactly. Like it's consequences culture, except that no one is actually doling them out um, personally. Um, just on this, to go back to the Polanski thing, I think it's very interesting just to note that Samantha Geimer, who is obviously the 13-year-old the girl at the time who Polanski had sex with, um, and, you know, there was this obviously this case, you know, in the interim has, by all accounts, forgiven Polanski and indeed is in contact with him. Um, and there's a very important question, I think, is which is to do with what happens when 
people are still invested in the wrongs of a case, let's say, but nevertheless, the two parties themselves are no longer invested in the case. Let's say they've both forgiven each other or one has forgiven the other if there has been serious harm or that there's been some form of reconciliation, negotiation and and discussion or whatever. But other people uh, take up the harm that they themselves did not suffer, right? but somehow want to feel it on behalf of the victim, even though that person is saying, I'm no longer a victim or I'm not a victim or this is not the whole story or whatever, right? What is that investment that people have in sort of harm by proxy, let's say? And we see it like constantly. People are outraged constantly about harms that they themselves did not uh, did not suffer. But it's very totalitarian, right? And in to- you know, in totalitarian logic, there is a, there's always a scapegoat. There's another who can't be included in the total. The totalitarian is never total enough. It can't mm-hmm. include the contingent other who is the thing that blocks out on the horizon the possible utopia that the totalitarian desires. So there's always somebody who is the most disgusting being of all time, and then who is harmful you know, to be the most awful, bad being, especially in today where the master signifier is like harm, do no harm, whatever. It's the, it's the harmful person. It's the bad, the dangerous, the person. So when this person, this group is represented in the harm doing, the ideologue who projects a fantasy utopia in a future behind the contingent poo face that they don't like, that they would rather get rid of in order to get the fantasy, but they can't, so the poo face is necessary. Um, Yeah, there'll always be a time when that group has done something wrong. Well, nobody cares about the details of cases anymore. Every time there's an example or a case or something in the media, it exists to confirm whatever view you have that you want confirmed. And you'll read the case through whatever lens you need to read it through to make it vibe with what you have to say. So if they reconcile, it's because she's weak or because she rolled over. And maybe she's, you know, just as bad as he is now for having acquiesced to this system. At this point, if this happened today, she wouldn't reconcile because it would be so emphatically against her own interests as a, you know, potentially someone with brand to reconcile with, with him. It would be, uh, so counterproductive to attempt a reconciliation because all it could do would be to invite the people who are her supporters as long as she conforms to their narrative of how this all works. Uh, As soon as she deviates from that, they would potentially turn on her for deviating from it. And that, I think, again, highlights how far removed Polanski's situation and the situation depicted in this film is from how things now work. And I wanted to kind of, I looked this up as we were talking, so the, the actors in the film when they were born. So Jodie Foster, 1962, so barely Gen X. John C. Riley, 1965. Kate Winslet, 1975. And Christoph Waltz, 1956. Christoph Waltz is older than my mother. That's how, you know, we're, we're now, we now have people who have 11-year-olds who were born in the late 80s and early 90s. You know, people who are, who are uh, at a totally different point in the development of the society. So I think, I think one of the, and it's kind of a surprise. I didn't think that we would be taking it in this direction as much as we are. I thought, you know, and when you watched it in 2011, this film was very clearly a critique of how things are now being done. And now we're watching this and going, oh, remember when people tried to talk stuff out? Yes. Well, exactly. That's what it sort of felt. I was like, um, this is better. <laughs> no, it is. Um, That's the, the politeness. Thing. Like this, but this is the thing. It's like we've done away. So, the, you know, but this is what we were saying the other day about the critique of critique. You know, it's not enough to just critique because the critique is always within an ideological perspective. It is its own ideological thing. So you have to critique that critique. But, but this was always coming here, wasn't it? This was, it was always building to where we now are. So this leads to where we are. I guess my question, and I, and I think this is maybe a good question to be the last question. The question is, is it better for somebody to snitch to the authority or is it better to just hit the person? 
<gasps> Which is better? Well, the thing is, if we say what we think is better, we might be cancelled. If we're not going to dialogue, if we're not going to talk stuff out with people, is is it better to do war or is it better to appeal to the impersonal mechanistic bureaucracy? That's, you know, because that's the question that the liberal will put to you. The liberal in defense of all of this will say, well, what do you want? I have an answer, but it's the Christian one, which is turn the other cheek, which is basically not to go, not to appeal to authority, believe in a higher authority, which is not the judge, the human judge, and to turn the other cheek. So if someone wants to be violent towards you and continue to be aggressive towards you, then you accept their aggression somehow, to, even to the point of death. I mean, yeah, I didn't no, realize exactly. This, you neutralize. Well. It's funny. Because it's like, there's this interesting thing that's come up with work at the moment is this idea of love them, love a person to the Lord, which I think is very bad because that's sort of, that's a, that's a very, um, I think it's actually unchristian because it's sort of like saying, as long as we do this, you know, I, so they're wrong, but as long as I'm nice to, contingently nice to them, knowing that they're wrong, I can win them over to God because the whole thing is that God, needs to be appeased and got to. But instead, actually, the Christian thing is it's nothing to do with God or not, per se. It's to do with um, ex grace. Grace, I think, is very different from love them to the Lord. And then grace, yeah, grace the, is the solution. Yeah, but then like... Perfect answer, you, guys. Yeah. Perfect answer. Yes, it's unconditional grace. That's the answer. Giving everybody a little bit more room because life is hard. It's hard. Wonderful. Perfect note to end it on. Thank you guys so much for that answer. I love it. And thank you guys so much for listening. Have a wonderful rest of the day. We're going to go and do the B-side. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.